0: In my apartment, uh, we live just two miles from here. We've got a small room that we've designated as a study, so all our books are in there. I've got a desk and I do some work in there. Um, Two and a half years ago, when we first moved to the area, one of the first things I did was I, I put a piece of paper on the wall, very simple. On that piece of paper is a circle with my name in it that I've written a J, and coming out of it are four arrows. At the end of each of these arrows are just a few phrases or words, and it's put there just as a reminder to myself of what my calling in this season of my life is. So uh, at one arrow it says child of God, another arrow says husband, another arrow says father, and another arrow says church planter. If I had written that a few years ago, I imagine there would be different words. I imagine 20 years from now, if I do it again, in another season of my life, there might be some other identities. But in this season of my life, these are my primary callings. This is who I am. This is what I'm going to be about. They just remind me of what my central identities and roles in life are. Now, I think we'd all get that on some days I fill those roles and fulfill those callings better than others. But I, I think you'd all agree with me that these are not things I'm striving to become. They are who I am, right? It's not that with some good effort I will become these things, but rather this is the reality of my life. When Jesus saved me, I became a child of God. On the day Shinu and I got married, I became a husband. When Hannah was born, I became a dad. When we moved here to plant this church, I became a church planter. Now, on some days, I will do that better than others, but this is who I am. This is not even what I'm striving to become. This is reality. This is my identity. In these weeks, in this series, what we've been trying to do is that same sort of thing with all of us. As we've been preaching through this series called Be the Church or Being the Church, what we're doing is we're taking your name and putting it on a piece of paper, drawing a big circle around it, and shooting off some arrows. And each week we're trying to fill out the picture of what your identity is. So for all of us, we're putting that word Christian or member, specifically here at Seven Mile Road Church. And then we've got some arrows shooting out the sides. So one week we said believers, that part of what we are is believers. Another week we said hearers and doers of God's word. We said covenant renewers or worshippers. And if you were here last week, Dennis added another word to that list, servants. And I need you to hear, these are not words that ascribe to some of us who are believers. This is for all. These aren't the words that are for the varsity Christians, but the B team has a different set of words. This is all of us. If you have come to know Jesus Christ, if he's forgiven you of your sins and made you a new creation, then this is now your identity. And granted, some days and some weeks we'll live out these callings and fulfill these roles better than others, but this is who you are. Each week we're saying, here's another thing of what it means to be a Christian, or here specifically, a member at Seven Mile Road. And so today what we're doing is we're taking another arrow and filling in another word, another reality about our identity here. And today we're adding the word missionary, that a part of what we are and who we are is missionaries. We're calling this sermon the church as missionaries. The church, that's you and I, we are missionaries. Okay, if you've been at Seven Mile Road for any time at all, you have undoubtedly heard that one of our firm commitments and convictions is that every member here is a missionary. That's, that's just basic for us. Every member here is a missionary. God calls some people to Africa and some people to China, and God calls some people to the ends of the earth, but in this season of your life, God has called you to Philadelphia, and you are in full-time ministry here. You got to hear that. That's not just a phrase I'm throwing out. You are in full-time ministry. I get that question all the time. And I want to say for all of us, you are in full-time ministry here. In his wisdom, God has seen it fit that your paycheck should come from different places. And so some of you get funded through the local university or a local hospital or a local law firm or Comcast. But wherever these streams of revenue come your way, all of you who know Christ are on full-time staff as full-time ministers, full-time in Jesus' ministry. And in 2 Corinthians 5, the passage that Todd read for us, Paul is going to describe the nature of that ministry. Paul is going to define the nature of the ministry that you are called to full-time. So if you have a Bible, you can turn to 2 Corinthians 5. It's page 966. And here with me again, listen as Paul is going to describe your missionary ministry. I'll begin at verse 18. He says, All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of Reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him who knew no sin to become sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Okay, let me pray, and then we'll continue to talk further. Our God, we give you thanks this day for your word. We pray that you would now consecrate us to your word and by your word and set us apart as you remind us again of the obligations and the privileges that are ours as your people. We pray that you would remind us who know you of our reconciliation with you and all of us who don't know you that you would reconcile us even today to yourself. We pray that you would save us who are sinners and saints through your word and give us grace to receive it now with meekness. Empower both the preaching and the hearing of this word for your glory and our good. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, if you're here and you're not a Christian, what I'm hoping happens is that as we walk through this passage, hopefully you get at least a glimpse into why Christians are the way that they are. Right? If you've met Christians, undoubtedly, one of the things that maybe even rubs you the wrong way about them is, why are they so obsessed with spreading their faith? Why are they so obsessed with seeing other people become Christians like them? I mean, isn't religion a private, personal thing? Isn't it a bit obnoxious, maybe even ignorant, maybe even intolerant to insist that other people should believe as you believe? Why can't they just let people be? Okay, so if you're here, what I'm hoping happens as as we walk through this passage is that you at least catch a glimpse of why Christians are the way that they are. Maybe it won't make full sense to you, but at least you'll get an idea of of why it is they so desperately long for people to know Jesus. And if you're here and you are a Christian, I want to acknowledge that any conversation about mission or evangelism or sharing your faith or any of it, it, it can come with sort of mixed feelings, Right? On one hand, if you're a Christian and you hear this conversation about mission evangelism, there's a sense of joy an honest excitement, right? If you know the Lord, there's a sense in which you desperately long for other people to know the Lord. If you don't have anything in your heart that longs to see other people in your city, in your world, come to know Christ, you've got to ask, do you know the gospel in the first place? Because one of the things that the gospel will do is birth in your heart this desire for other people to know Jesus. If that's not there, you really have to take a step back and examine your heart and go, Do I get the gospel at all? So if you get the gospel, there's this joy in your heart about this conversation because you desperately want people to know Christ that's in you. If you're a seasoned veteran Christian, if you've been around Christianity for a while... There's few things that are as exciting to you as being around a young Christian, a baby Christian, a, a new convert, right? You know that feeling. It's sort of the way that old people hang around babies, right? If, if you see an older person with a baby, they sort of hold them tight and smell them to sort of suck in that youth. And they're rejuvenated and energized as they hold this young life. That's the way that older Christians are around newer Christians. We love their energy and their passion and their excitement and their enthusiasm and the way they're eager and sincere about this whole thing rejuvenates and energizes our own spirituality and faith. We love hearing them pray because no one's taught them Christianese and so they stumble through their prayers, they swear to God while they're talking to Him and no one's yet told them you can't curse while you're praying, but we love it. Because it's raw, and it's honest, and it's real, and and our faith is strengthened as we see these baby Christians. So there's a, a side of the conversation when we talk about mission, evangelism, sharing your faith. We are missionaries that is full of joy, excitement. Let's talk about this. But I want to acknowledge that there's another feeling as well. And that's the feeling that causes you to sort of sink into your chair and slump a little bit because you know that this conversation is just another one of those things that you ought to be doing, but you're probably not doing, and if you are doing, you're not doing all that well. I'd imagine if you've been Christian for any time, I don't think I'm going to give something earth-shattering and new to you today. If I tell you we are called by Jesus Christ to share the gospel that other people might come to know Jesus Christ, I don't know that that's going to be entirely new for you. Instead, what I fear is that you will hear that and again be reminded of another thing in Christianity you ought to be doing and you're not doing it or You're not doing it all that well. I want you to hear that I get that. I acknowledge that. I know I'm the one speaking here to you, but I want you to hear if I was sitting there, I would get that. And that's because I am not a gifted evangelist. And maybe that'll be encouraging or helpful for you to hear that the guy who God has called to lead this mission is not particularly good at it. And I'm not being modest, I'm being honest. I am not a gifted evangelist or missionary. In fact, let me tell you about a few of my recent conversations with unbelievers. One of the things that I do is I work at Starbucks all the time. Partly because it's got the free coffee, or Anne works there so it's free coffee. (laughs) Um, It's got free internet, nice couches, uh, but mostly I go there because it's a great place to meet people. So if I've got to work behind a computer or read or study, I can do that in an office by myself, or by at least doing that at Starbucks, I at least have the opportunity that maybe I'll bump into someone, meet someone, become a regular, get to know the baristas, and get to know some of the other customers. All of that, by God's grace, has happened. So I work there. I buy my cup of coffee for a buck in the morning, and that's my rent, and I, and I sit there for eight hours just working at Starbucks. One of these days, just a few weeks ago, I'm sitting in my cubicle, that's what I've called my section of the Starbucks, and I'm just sitting at my laptop working and in comes an older gentleman and he sits right next to me. He's working there for a few hours and I don't hardly notice him. A few minutes later, I turn over to look to the right for something, and I see that on his computer he's sitting there viewing pornography, right here at Starbucks. So now I get uncomfortable and I don't know what I'm supposed to do and I think maybe this is some kind of spam thing that just popped into his computer and so then 10 minutes later, sort of out of curiosity, sort of because I needed to look right again, I look over and this guy's just surfing. He's He's not even just dabbling, he's just going looking at pornography. And then, I don't know if you've ever had it, then begins the sort of fight in my heart, the conversation with God, where I feel like God is telling me to talk to him, and I'm telling God that he's out of his mind, and there's no way that I'm going to do that, and so we begin to wrestle, right? And so I'm telling God, what am I supposed to say? How do you even start that conversation? What am I going to do? To complicate matters further, when I walk into Starbucks in the morning, one of the things that God reminds me to do is just to pray, saying, Lord, I'm here for you. If you want me to meet anyone, talk to anyone I'm your servant, I'm your missionary here at Starbucks. So I had just happened to pray that prayer that morning as well, which I wish I didn't. And then I'm I'm feeling this conversation. So now I don't know what to do. I email Shibu, because Shibu's usually at his computer when he's at work, usually not doing work. And so I I write to him quickly and I say, hey, Shibu, I'm sitting at Starbucks. The guy next to me is looking at porn. Would you pray for me? I don't know if God wants me to say something. So I, I fight for a few more minutes and then I turn to him And I say something like, I just want you to know Jesus is so much better than that. Okay. Now, here's what I want to tell you happened next. (laughs) I want to tell you that he just began to weep, and got on his knees, and repented, and prayed a prayer with me. I grabbed the nearest iced coffee, and I baptized him right there at Starbucks. And that's what happened, right? I don't know what I expected, but I got what you would expect if a guy just got caught looking at porn. So he says, I'm sorry, that, that was just spam. I didn't think you, I didn't mean to offend you. And, and so we start talking. And so over the course of the conversation, I let him know I was not speaking down to him. I know the devastation of sin. I myself am a sinner. The only thing in me is Jesus. And Jesus is a better treasure. And Jesus has saved me. And so we start talking. And then from there, nothing happens. Nothing. Fortunately enough, we didn't feel awkward, so we continued sitting there, and that was sort of the end of it. No repentance, no conversion, nothing. Or or I meet another guy in Starbucks, a different man. We get into this conversation. He was writing in his notebook. He had been writing Hebrew, and so I started talking to him. I told him in seminary I had studied some Hebrew and forgot it all, and so we start talking. He he tells me his story. He's an ex-Catholic who is now studying mysticism and Kabbalah and Sufism. He's been in a few marriages, a few children from different women that he doesn't know. He's in rehab for addiction to sex and to alcohol. He doesn't have a job and he's down on his luck. So we meet and we talk. We start talking about God and faith. He actually agrees to even study the scriptures with me. So one day we meet outside of Starbucks. I study Ephesians 2 with him, walk him through verses 1 to 3 about the deadness that of our sin, tell him about the great hope of the gospel in verse 4, and then that's the end of it. It was a great conversation, good questions, I felt like we had connected, and then now he doesn't return my calls, he doesn't write back to my emails, I have never heard or seen from him again. And... and The part of this all is I could literally keep going. I could tell you all afternoon of story after story of story that sort of went nowhere. I'm not particularly gifted at evangelism and and maybe that's an encouragement to you to hear that I I struggled with even how to preach this text because I don't have a good story. I don't have one to tell you to inspire you on to mission. And because I'm not particularly good at it, I tend to go to one of two extremes when it comes to evangelism. When it comes to mission, I'm either like an evangelistic marksman or I'm like an evangelistic mime. Here's what I mean. Either I know I'm supposed to do this and so I become a marksman. I sort of see everybody with a bullseye on their head. And I'm not looking to build a relationship with them, love them, talk to them, meet them. I'm not looking to serve them, hear about their family, hear about their struggles. All I know is they've got a bullseye on their head, and I've got to hit that with the gospel. So I'm just sort of like a marksman, like an assassin, sitting at a a perch top, just waiting to hit people with the gospel. And rarely does that work. Or I become this evangelistic mime, right? What's a mime do? A mime never says anything. But his hope is that by his actions, you will discover what he's trying to say. And I really like that kind of evangelism, right? And, and often we default into that kind of evangelism. We love the line that says, I'm just going to speak with, through my actions. By the way that I work or sharpen my pencil, or whatever it is that you do, people are becoming Christians because they're watching your life. Ebby's going to pick on me because he loves this quote, by St. Francis of Assisi that says, preach the gospel, and if necessary, use words. Okay, that's good. I get the heart of that. But that's almost like saying, feed the poor, and if necessary, use food. Right? If what St. Francis and Ebby is saying is, listen, live your life in such a way that it demands a response, and then when God gives you that opportunity, you preach the gospel, I'm for it. But if all of that just becomes this default position for us that says, I'm just going to live my life and hope that people are converted all around me without ever having to say anything, you've missed the point. Because the gospel is a gospel message. It's a word. It must be proclaimed. It's a a message that must be told. And so mime evangelism won't work. Fortunately for us, the Apostle Paul has a much better metaphor than either. He doesn't swing to either extreme. Listen to what he says in 2 Corinthians 5. He says, All this is from God, who has reconciled us to himself and given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. And then he says in verse 20, Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us, we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. The metaphor that Paul wants to lock onto is we are ambassadors for Christ, and that God is making his appeal through us, and that we implore on behalf of Christ to all the world, be reconciled to God. All right, Paul is saying something wonderful there. And it's a, a metaphor I want us to think about, but before we do, let's just get the logic of this whole section of what he's trying to say. So in verse 18, back up with me for a second and hear that again. He says, all this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of Reconciliation. Here's what Paul is saying. If you're here and you're wondering, why are Christians the way that they are? Why are they so obsessed with seeing people come to believe Jesus? The Apostle Paul is going to say, it's because something happened in us. We didn't do it. We didn't make it happen. But God did something to us. What did God do into the heart of a believer? Paul's going to say, he reconciled us to himself. He reconciled us. That what has happened for us who believe is that God reconciled us to himself. In that day, that word reconciliation, it was this financial term, almost meaning exchange, sort of like the word you would use saying, if I exchanged one currency into another. You were replacing something. And metaphorically, when Paul uses it, it's the idea that you're substituting or exchanging or replacing one state of affairs with another, So war is being replaced with peace, or hatred is being replaced with love, or enmity is being replaced with friendship. And Paul is saying that kind of a transaction, that kind of an exchange, has happened to us. God reconciled us. Now I need you to hear the obvious. The obvious is if reconciliation has to happen, that means that the current state of affairs is that there is conflict between God and you. Hear that again. That your current state, apart from Christ, is that there is this great turmoil and hostility and conflict between you and God. That may be news to some of you who are sitting here thinking that you and God are tight. Your good deeds and your right prayers have brought you together with God. And the scriptures are saying you are actually in conflict with God needing to be reconciled. That apart from Christ reconciling you, you find yourself at enmity with God. Hear that. The scriptures will say in Romans 5, listen to these words. It says, While we were enemies... God reconciled us through the death of Christ, while we were enemies. That the state that we find ourselves in is this chasm between us and God, this gulf, this separation, this alienation between us and God. You have to hear that. That your state as a human being, by nature and by choice, is that you are separated from God. And you cannot just cross the street, ring the doorbell on God's house, And be made right. There's this infinite chasm, this gulf, this separation that you cannot bridge. Your prayers cannot bridge it. Your good deeds cannot bridge it. You find yourself separated from God at conflict, at enmity, in hostility with Him. But here's the good news that Paul is going to say in 2 Corinthians 5. The good news is that when you could not approach God, God crossed the street to approach you. God crossed the street and rang the doorbell of your house to be reconciled with you. In this Advent season, in Christmas, what we're celebrating is a God who crossed the street to come to our doorstep. A God we could not approach, we could not go near, a God we were even blind to our alienation from, He comes in the form of Jesus, rings on our doorbell to reconcile us to himself. And you think of that. God accomplished it all. God is the offended party. And yet he overcomes our wrong to make things right with us. You know in your life, if if a boyfriend and a girlfriend are having trouble... They cannot solve them themselves. What they need is a third party to come and mediate between the two. You need a ref, an umpire. If you have two nations locked in a struggle with one another, you need a third nation to come and mediate peace. But with God, God comes to us who have done the wrong, and he takes the punishment for our wrong and himself mediates peace between us. Think of that. We're the ones who have offended him. When you get offended, what do you do? You wait and you sulk till they come groveling to you. You're not crossing the street. They did the wrong. They got to come to you. But God is the one who we wronged and still bears the punishment for our wrongs that we might be made right. And he reconciles us to himself. He he remedies this uncrossable bridge. And he bridges the gap through Jesus Christ. In Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself. And then here's the kicker. And then Paul will say in 2 Corinthians 5, God entrusts this message and this ministry of reconciliation to us. So not only does he reconcile us to himself, he then gives us the ministry of reconciliation to the world. He takes reconciled men and women and makes us agents of his reconciliation. You have been brought near and now you are being sent out so that others might be brought near. right? And that's why he says in verse 20, Therefore we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. And this is now your identity. God is saying, you who have been reconciled, you are now ambassadors for Christ. Think through that metaphor. What is an ambassador? An ambassador is anyone who is a representative of a king or a kingdom who is sent to an alien people with the message of the king. And that's your identity now. You are representatives of a foreign kingdom and a foreign king and you have been sent with the message of that king to all the rebels of that state. Hear that again. You are an enemy of the state that has been reconciled to this great king. And now you have been entrusted with the peace treaty to bring to the other rebels that they might know of peace with the king. That all who would come under the protection of the king would not face his fierce wrath, but could be reconciled and brought into his kingdom. That's what God has entrusted to you. I maybe have said this before. This would be like if America's strategy on the war on terror tomorrow became, we're going to grab Osama bin Laden. And once we get him, we're going to pardon him. That's the gospel. We're going to reconcile him. We're going to give him citizenship. And then after we've given him citizenship, we're going to appoint him as the ambassador to Afghanistan. And he will bring the message to win others to us. If you heard that in the news tomorrow, what would that be like? And that's God's plan for the world. That's God's whole plan for the world. Is to take alien enemies of the state and bring them in and pardon their sin and forgive their trespasses and offer them citizenship in heaven and then to send them back into the world as ambassadors of this new kingdom for a new king that other enemies of the state might be brought in. You are an ambassador for Jesus Christ. You represent an alien king, a good king, who has offered a peace treaty for the whole world through your lips. God is imploring the world, be reconciled to me. That's what we're doing in your soul care communities and your small groups this week, I would plead with you, talk through why does God give us this metaphor? What is it about being an ambassador that might help shape your understanding of mission? Right? What does an ambassador do? And talk about it in your soul care community or, or with some friends. I'd imagine that if you're an ambassador, you're going to have to go to another culture and learn its custom and its languages so that when you communicate this message, they might receive it. How does that shape our call? You're gonna have to build relationships, I'd imagine. If you're a diplomat, if you're an ambassador sent to a foreign nation, you're gonna work hard on building relationships so that you might earn a right to be heard. Your message might have the greatest chance of being received. How does that shape us? If you're an ambassador, I'd imagine you have to study your own message well. You're not speaking or inventing your own words. You're faithfully just a mouthpiece for the king's message. And so how does that shape or influence your call to be an ambassador. I want to leave you with just one implication or thought, and then I want to invite you to talk through this with your own communities. If I could leave you with one thought from this text, it's that God has reconciled you in Christ and called you to be an ambassador, and that should be encouraging and humbling and freeing. Hear that again. God's called you to be an ambassador. That could be humbling and freeing and encouraging. Where does an ambassador get his authority? Where does he get the words to say? On what basis should anyone listen to him? All of it is rooted in someone else and not in himself. So if you're here and you're going, I'm not very good at evangelism. I have really good news for you. That's probably a good place to be. Because the power of this whole thing does not rest in you, but in the king that you represent. The words that you have are his. The authority by which you speak are his. Everything about your whole work comes rooted in someone else. This is not about you. That would be freeing. If I went to Starbucks and recognized, this is not about the effectiveness in which I'm going to communicate. This is not about the cleverness in which I'm going to put together my sentences. All I am is an ambassador representing a good king and delivering his peace treaty to all who would hear. And it's not my job to convince, or or to make anything happen, I am representing a good king. Maybe it's no wonder that just one chapter before this, in 2 Corinthians 4, Paul is actually going to say, you know what we are? We're jars of clay that hold this great treasure. Maybe there's not such a disconnect. Maybe no wonder, right before he's going to call us ambassadors, he says, you know who you are? You're jars of clay. You've got this great treasure, but it's held in these earthen sort of crummy vessels, right? If you have a great treasure, I'd imagine you put it in the safest, surest bank vault or safe. And yet God has chosen to deposit the priceless treasure of the gospel in you. Weak, broken, chipped, earthen jars of clay. But because the great power is in the treasure in you, not about you. It's not the jar of clay, it's the treasure in you. So you're an ambassador, And your job is simply to faithfully deliver the message of the king. So would you be encouraged that God loves this city? And because he loves this city, he has set up little embassies all over this city. Think of that. In the northeast, on Bowler and Bonner and Busselton, there are embassies that God has appointed and set up in this city because he loves this people. In Dresher, he's appointed an embassy. In Willow Grove, he's put an embassy. In King of Prussia, he's put an embassy. In Center City and University City at Drexel Campus. In all these places, he has set up embassies with his ambassadors so that many might become Christians. Many might come to know him. The Lord loves this city. And what, what a grace from him that he's put you exactly where you are in the street that you live, at the office where you work, in the classrooms where you study, and he's put you there that you might be his ambassador. And here's the good message that we're saying. It's the last verse, verse 21. And we'll end with this. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Hear that one more time. For our sake... God made Jesus to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. You don't have to invent a good message. There's a good message to tell. And that is that God made Jesus who knew no sin to become sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of Christ. So if you're a Christian, would you go out today and be an ambassador? And would you take great hope in the fact that this is not about you, but in the king that you represent? And if you're not a Christian, Even today, would you be reconciled to God? There is this chasm, this gulf, and nothing you can do can bridge it, but God crossed the street to come to you. Be reconciled to God. Let's pray.